we're going to see more innovation, very exciting new products, whether that's delivery methods, you know, even lower dose products for people who are not traditionally cannabis consumers, but want to use it maybe as an alternative to wine or things like that. Seeing a lot of interesting innovation in the beverage space in general, even outside of cannabis, there's been such a move among like Gen Z to drink less alcohol than the rest of us have been drinking. And so we're seeing a lot of interesting new like functional beverage categories coming out and, and cannabis is right there with that. It's hard to say where the CBD market will go, but it, it does seem to be very popular. And I think as we learn more, you know, that could be a good alternative to opiates and, and anxiety beds and things like that. And so we might see more mainstream acceptance. Welcome to the Social Complex Podcast, where we are diving into the complex impact and influence of social media on brands, brains, and the bigger picture of our modern world. Here's your host, Hillary Applegate. The cannabis industry is a nuanced one. With regulations different country by country, state by state, county by county, businesses bringing cannabis products to market are faced with uncertainty that changes by the day. But with legalization growing in popularity, more companies are opening up with the prospect of bringing their products to market. Today, we're joined by attorney Amanda Conley, founder of Conley Law Firm in Oakland, California. Amanda is a co-founder of the International Cannabis Bar Association. She helps creative entrepreneurs across a variety of industries protect, leverage, and enforce their intellectual property. She specializes in helping clients navigate highly regulated industries such as cannabis, hemp, dietary supplements, and emerging technologies. She also advises on advertising, marketing, website, and labeling compliance. Amanda brought so much insight to this episode and shares data of the reality of the industry along with predictions of what's to come. Let's get into it. Amanda, thank you so much for joining us on the Social Complex Podcast. Listeners do not know this, but we actually have already recorded this episode and it's sadly... <laughs> did not make it past recording, but this time, this time it will work. I feel good about it. Second time's a charm. That's what they always say, right? Absolutely. <laughs> First was a practice round. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Give us an introduction into you, who you are and what you do. Sure. Thanks. Uh, so my name's Amanda Conley. I am uh, an attorney and I have my own firm called Conley Law. I do intellectual property work. Um, I advise companies on protecting their brands, building out a international trademark portfolio, enforcing against third parties who infringe their brands. And then I also advise on advertising and things like influencer agreements and social media marketing and all that fun and exciting stuff. Um, and I draft contracts and, and handle early stage disputes and things like that. But I have a particular specialty in cannabis, uh, marijuana and hemp products. And actually about seven years ago, I co-founded a bar association, a group for attorneys who were serving the cannabis industry, because back then there weren't too many of us on this side, a lot of criminal defense attorneys, but not a lot of company, not a lot of attorneys advising companies on how to do business and comply with the laws such as they are. And there are a lot of laws that apply to cannabis and also not enough. Um, so it's a, it's a fun and complicated area. And it's been great to see the growth over the last several years. That bar association, when we started, had like 50 members. And now we have, I think, close to 1,000 internationally um, because cannabis is an international business now. And there's a lot of excitement there. Still maybe not as much money as we'd hoped, but, but there's a lot of interest. And um, it's, it's an exciting industry. That's awesome that it's international. Which countries would you say are leading the charge in the cannabis industry and who's, you know, new or late to the game that you're finding is <laughs> peaking interest? I think the U.S. and to some extent Canada are really leading that charge. I mean, the U.S., the fact that we still have federal prohibition of marijuana and, as we'll talk about later, the FDA hasn't really approved the sale of a lot of the hemp and CBD products that we see on the market puts us a bit behind. Canada did the reverse of us. So we in the U.S., we have a federal prohibition on cannabis, but then state by state, we allow cannabis sales, um, cannabis commerce and things in those states. 
in Canada, they did the reverse. Um, they legalized it federally, and then they allowed the provinces to ban it. Um, and the effect of that, they, they don't necessarily have a market that competes with our state markets here, but they do have access to banking and capital that aren't available in the U.S. as a result of the federal prohibition. So in that sense, I think Canada got ahead of the game, at least initially a few years ago, um, and, and their markets are still sort of rolling out. The EU, they are ahead of us on seed sales and to some extent CBD products, although it's a lot more medical focused over there. And then you've got some sort of uh, isolated, interesting areas like Spain has a fair bit of um, recreational cannabis, I guess you could say. It's it's more decriminalized than it is full-on legalized, um, or at least that's been the case. But a lot of, a lot of exciting things happening, and there's a an annual event called Spanibus, which is cannabis in Spain. Um, it's a, a fun one to go to if any listeners are looking for a reason to visit Europe and uh, enjoy some cannabis. And, you know, then we see other, other places trying. I think Australia has a limited medical market. Some interesting things in South America, not as much in the Asian countries. China allows for protection of cannabis-related IP but um, doesn't otherwise have any kind of legal cannabis regime. And I think it just kind of varies throughout Europe. It's it's a patchwork. <laughs> it's very much a patchwork. And I think we're all sort of looking to how we can import and export hemp and, well, especially hemp at this point, but eventually marijuana products. Jamaica has um, some exciting stuff going on and uh, some Latin American countries. I can't really even keep up with everything, to be honest. Um, and, and each one has its own nuance. So I feel like we just went through the entire uh, world. So that was a really good map. <laughs> <laughs> so will you talk about importing and exporting and I mean, cross country even is across state lines, across county lines. What does that look like in today's market in the United States when it comes to cannabis products? Yeah, it's a great question. In the U.S., because we still have the federal prohibition on marijuana, and when I say that, I mean, um, so what we refer to as cannabis actually includes both hemp and marijuana. And this is a legal distinction, not a scientific one. So marijuana is cannabis that contains at least 0.3% THC. And there's a little more nuance there that we can maybe get into later. But hemp is uh, cannabis that contains less than 0.3% THC. So there's a, it's, it's all about the THC content. And THC is the fun cannabinoid, the one that gets you high, the one that we've all known about for many years. And so in the US, marijuana is federally prohibited still. So the states are sort of allowed to regulate it on their own, and the feds have not said it's okay, but they've said they aren't going to spend money enforcing against cannabis markets in states that have regulated it. So what that means is that the feds are hands-off with the individual states, but the products cannot cross state lines. So for example, California has a cannabis regulatory scheme. Nevada does as well. We're next to each other, but we can't ship products across state lines. People shouldn't even travel with cannabis across state lines because once you cross state lines in the U.S., that's you're in interstate commerce, and that is federally regulated. So each state can regulate things within its own borders, generally speaking. But when things cross those borders, that enters into federal commerce, and it's illegal. So what that means is you might see the same edibles brand, let's say, in a California dispensary and a Nevada dispensary, but that product was manufactured in the state that you're purchasing it in. So if it's an edible, you know, in some brand in California, it was the cannabis was cultivated in California. It was then processed in California. The product, final product is manufactured in California and it's for sale in California. In Nevada, that same company may have found a partner in Nevada or they may have set up their own separate operations in the state of Nevada. 
to go through that whole same process, grow the cannabis, manufacture the cannabis, um, you know, create the product and sell it there. But it's all intrastate. Um, and so that creates a real burden that doesn't exist for other kinds of um, companies. Uh, you know, usually it's not a problem to ship your products across state lines. That's what we do. That's one of the benefits of U.S. commerce um, is, you know, you can take advantage of selling to all 50 states. And that's just not the case. Um, so I help a lot of clients enter into IP license agreements that will allow them to have their products sold through partnerships, joint ventures, just a straightforward license, things like that in those other states because they they can't be shipped. On the import-export side with other countries, there are some laws allowing import and export, mostly of hemp, but arguably of cannabis. And this is outside the scope of my practice. So I, I will I will not delve further into that. I certainly don't want to suggest that you should be engaging in what would probably constitute international drug trafficking. Um, but there are some, <laughs> some pathways opening up there. So sort of stay tuned for that. Um, but for now, everything is, is pretty much a closed market, which is pretty rough if you think about it. So you've got some states where like Oregon has just too much cannabis flower. They have too much weed. And so they really, either the market, there are these market inefficiencies. And again, I'm also not an economist, but it's my understanding, you know, like supply and demand, right? The basic things we learn about how markets operate, they're not working very well. And so you've got a glut of cannabis in Oregon that they can't sell. And so it's driving the prices down. Other states are building up cannabis markets, starting to regulate it, and they don't have enough cannabis, but they can't just get it from Oregon. At least so far, we haven't found a way to do that uh, within the, the bounds of federal law. So it's, it's, it's a bit of an interesting mess out there. It sounds like a landmine from a legal standpoint. Yes. You just got to be really careful where you step. Yes. When it comes to IP agreements... How are these cannabis companies building brand equity given the confines that they're not able to expand beyond their state, maybe even city, maybe even county? I mean, there's a lot of barrier to entry for these businesses. How are they navigating that from an IP standpoint as that is your specialty? The short answer is a lot of brands are still tied to one state. We have a lot of California brands that haven't moved outside of California yet. We might see more of that now that states like New York are, are coming on board in a big way. But that's often the case. A company has to be pretty financially um, prepared to expand. I mean, it's, it's, again, it's, it's, it's quite an endeavor to have to find partners or set up entire headquarters in another state or entire manufacturing facilities and things like that. So we're seeing a lot of internal to a state brands, and that's a problem from an IP perspective, because uh, in the U.S., your trademark rights are based on use, use of the mark. So you don't necessarily have to get a registration. There are a lot of value to getting the registration. But once you start using the mark, you do technically have what we call common law trademark rights. But those common law rights are limited by geography. They're limited to the area that you actually used the mark. So in normal non-cannabis business, this isn't too much of a problem. Someone slaps up a website, they have some e-commerce, great, they're using that mark all over the United States. They you know, get orders from a few different states, they're a multi-state business, they're covered. In cannabis, I've had clients who have been you know, using their brand and building up brand goodwill in California for a few years, and then they find out, oh, there's someone in Colorado we didn't even know is using that same brand with their cannabis products, and they've been using it maybe for a few years. Well, now we have this this priority fight, we would call it, and, and potentially have to divide up those territories. So legally speaking, the client in California has rights in California, and the one in Colorado has rights in Colorado, and it's sort of now just a race <laughs> to see who can gather up more territory. Um, and again, this, this just... This, these sorts of conflicts don't typically happen. They might happen with like local restaurants and things like that. Um, but it's certainly in the last 30 years or so, we just haven't seen conflicts like this other than in the cannabis industry. So that's the difficult side. I think what we're doing to help brands protect their trademark and get that protection on a nationwide basis is sort of twofold. You know, the ideal protection that you would get is, is a federal trademark. 
as you can imagine, when cannabis or I should say marijuana is federally prohibited, the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office is not super excited about granting trademark rights over a federally unlawful good or service. Now, uh, trademark attorneys like me have a lot of arguments for why that's not the correct policy or even supported by the law, but we don't we don't need to get into that. But the current policy is when you file a trademark application, you have to identify the brand and then also the goods or services that are being offered under that brand. If the goods or services you identify violate federal law, then that federal agency is not going to give you a trademark registration. So what we do instead is we get a bit creative and we try to protect what we call the federally lawful aspects of their brand. So, you know, the company's primary business may be selling edibles, but perhaps they also have a website with a ton of content on it about cannabis, about lifestyle and why you use cannabis and not making health claims, but, you know, talking about the product, maybe they bring in celebrities to endorse it, whatever. That sort of content could itself be a service that we protect at the trademark office. So I might file an application for them for their brand in connection with providing information and media about cannabis online, something like that. And that's a good way to build up rights on a nationwide basis, because while they can't ship their products across the country, people from all over the country, or in theory, the world, can watch those videos or read their blog posts or get their information. A really great example of this is Leafly, L-E-F-L-E-A-F-L-Y. Leafly is a they offer a number of services, but they're just a robust website that provides like dispensary locator services and they facilitate deliveries in various ways. But they also just have a ton of news and information about cannabis and the kind of repository that you will go to, to learn more, to get the information you need. And that's a really valuable service that they offer all over the world. Um, So, so it's, that's one way to develop rights in your brand. So I'll often find myself encouraging my clients like, hey, I know you're really focused on your product, but what else are you going to do on the website? Like, have you brought in a marketing person, someone to think about building out some content in part so we can get rights in your brand in connection with that content? Another option is if they sell merchandise that's not cannabis, like t-shirts or hats. That's helpful. Um, a lot of people that that they're inclined to file for that, there are some drawbacks to it and it doesn't give us the best argument for a likelihood of confusion. If someone is infringing my cannabis brand by selling cannabis, and my best argument is, well, I own this brand in connection with t-shirts, it's not the strongest argument, but it's something. So we do what we can to get protection federally. It can also be tricky. Um, you know, a lot of clients will do like lighters and grinders with their brand on it. That seems like it would be an easy piece of merchandise to protect, and it's related to cannabis products. But Technically, that's probably paraphernalia uh, under federal law, making it illegal if it is designed or intended primarily for use with marijuana. And so sometimes the trademark office will say, no, we're rejecting your efforts to register your brand with this lighter because we can tell that this lighter is intended to be used with marijuana. And it's a tough argument to make that it's not if the lighter has a marijuana brand on it. Like, yeah. um, so, <laughs> so it's an ever evolving fun project of trying to get that federal protection in parallel. We can get state trademark protection. That's something that you wouldn't hear about in most industries, but again, in this unique intrastate market, um, it makes sense. The problem there is, uh, number one, your state protection only applies in that state. So it doesn't solve the issue I described earlier where you have a brand in California and another one in Colorado, like that state protection limited to that state. Number two, you can't get state trademark rights until you're actually selling products or offering services in that state. So whereas at the federal office, you can actually file a trademark application about three years before you even start using the mark to try to sort of get your stake in the ground and put the public on notice that you're going to be using that trademark as you build up your business. At the state level, that's not an option. So I you know, have a client in California who's selling cannabis in California, and they might tell me, hey, we're planning to go into Nevada. We have a partner. We're entering into an agreement. I can't file a Nevada state trademark application for them until there's actually a product being sold in a dispensary there. And that's not ideal. You would like to be able to get that protection in advance. I'd like to be able to say in that license agreement, with the Nevada partner, we own these rights. We're licensing these rights to that we already own. And instead we have to say something more like, we generally own these rights and you will help us to secure them in Nevada and you won't challenge our ability 
to get this registration in Nevada. So it's, it's full employment for lawyers. It's a lot of extra work, <laughs> things, <laughs> things that you wouldn't, <laughs> you wouldn't have to deal with in other industries, but that's what we do. And then I think from a marketing standpoint and you know, marketing the brand, it is really important that the company, even if they are headquartered in one state and partnering with folks in other states, it's important to really think about having a central management of their of their marketing plan and of like what the, what the brand looks like in the public. And so obviously to the extent they're doing social media marketing, that's going to be accessible in all the States and, you know, everywhere. And so what will often happen is the California company, let's say, who's having their products manufactured and sold in other States will manage the social media. They'll manage the website. They'll manage everything else. And they'll work with their partners in other States to get the sales team going there. But the marketing is all going to come from the company wherever they're based. So it's really tricky. Um, it's, it's something that clients have to be very intentional about. They have to really come up with what that brand strategy is. There are pitfalls and landmines all over the place. And they have to, I think, probably most importantly, find partners they trust to work with. A lot of times companies will say to me, like, can you write me a bulletproof license agreement that, you know, they can't screw me over. They can't do this or they can't do that. And the answer is no, not really. Like, that's not the the point of, of an agreement. You need to find a partner that you trust because you're putting a lot in their hands. You're, you're putting your brand in their hands. Yeah, absolutely. And as long as they're not going to screw you over, you're not really going to need that agreement. So, <laughs> well, I don't know if I'd go that far. <laughs> okay. Okay. You'll still need the agreement, but you'll, you'll be in good hands. The more ethical mm-hmm. you choose and the, the better, mm-hmm. the better experience you choose, the better hands you'll be in. There's a lot to unpack. Let's start broad and then we'll get more nitty gritty. So broad stroke. Mm-hmm. You talked about marketing content. That's an area where these cannabis companies can build equity in essentially their brand, their IP, and through education and content development, that is a shoe in as as much of a shoe in as you possibly could to starting to protect yourself and looking into the crystal ball of the future that's going to say, you know, one day you probably will be able to ship this across state lines and you probably mm-hmm. will be able to ship this to other countries and export. So you want to start protecting yourself now. How are brands in this space navigating the terms and conditions of these social media platforms when it comes to cannabis? Currently, most social media platforms, unless they're like specific to cannabis or they're just like radical free speech platforms, certainly the mainstream ones that we think of Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, their terms very broadly prohibit the advertising of things like illegal drugs, obviously, but also, you know, some go even further to say no medicine or products that aren't regulated or permitted by the FDA, or basically they give themselves a wide latitude to say, that the promotion of a lot of different products violate their terms and service. And absolutely, the promotion of marijuana products violate their terms of service. And in most cases, CBD products do as well. And the reason, just quickly, that CBD products are are included is that even though hemp is now legal, the FDA has not approved the sale of any food or dietary supplement that contains CBD or other cannabinoids. They're okay with things like hemp seed oil, but that's not usually what's in the CBD products that you're seeing on the market. So a lot of what gets advertised in the cannabis space is not federally lawful, either because it's explicitly prohibited by the Controlled Substances Act or it's not prohibited, but it's it's not allowed to be sold and marketed by the FDA. So Understandably, these social media companies have given themselves that wide latitude to prohibit this advertising, but the enforcement is really inconsistent. So if you're sitting here thinking like, well, that's surprising because I've seen a lot of ads for CBD products on Facebook, or I've, you know, I follow 15 marijuana accounts on Instagram and they seem fine. Like, yeah, you're not wrong. There is a fair bit that either gets past the censors or they don't care about. It's hard to say. It seems like 
paid advertising might trigger censors more, especially on Facebook. So we see a little less of that. What I see a ton of is companies with Instagram pages. In fact, to the point where when I do a trademark clearance search to see if someone's using a brand in cannabis, it's very important that I search Instagram because sometimes that's the only place it shows up. And so Instagram can be a great tool for these companies. They can develop huge following, you know, and, and do a great job promoting on there. But at any point, because the promotion of marijuana products, or even in, in some cases, like the display of an image of someone smoking or violating the law, et cetera, violates Instagram's terms of service, their account could be shut down. It's not uncommon that a company that is a marijuana company and, and marijuana brand on Instagram will lose their entire account. So it's not just that a post or a post that they try to promote gets taken down. It's that they lose their entire account and obviously then all the followers. Some companies will have backup accounts set up because they think it's going to happen. But it is very hard to predict. I have clients who've had it happen a few times. I have others who aren't sure why it's never happened. And it can be pretty devastating to the brand. And it's tricky. You know, one thing that comes up for me is one thing I help my clients do is if someone is impersonating them online or, you know, making a, a fake a website to sell their products or something like that, I will handle the takedown, making sure we, we get that offline. And so sometimes my clients will come to me and say, you know, someone's made an Instagram account that uses my brand or is pretending to be me. And Instagram has great tools for reporting that sort of thing. But I am not inclined to report to Instagram <laughs> that my client who advertises marijuana on their platform <laughs> in violation of their terms of service needs help shutting down someone else who is fraudulently advertising marijuana on their platform in violation of their terms of service, because it, oh, it definitely man. creates the risk that my account, my client's account gets shut down. So, so it's tough. It means we can't avail ourselves of the same tools that are available to traditional businesses. And the clients are just constantly wondering when they might lose that valuable advertising platform. And that goes back to the whole importance of the website, which is mm -hmm. you don't own your Instagram page, but you do own mm -hmm your content on your website and mm -hmm. you have control of if you take your followers and are constantly re-engaging them to get something from them, whether that is an email address, a phone number, mm -hmm. whatever it may be, the data that they are able and willing to share with you. I feel like the bar for cannabis companies is just so much higher because you're right. They, they do get shut down left and right all the time. You don't always get a straight answer as to what it was that ticked him off. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but mm -hmm. I've also seen some modern warfare when it comes to reporting pages where mm -hmm. competitors will essentially go and report a competitor's page to mm -hmm. get them removed or flagged or on the radar. And to me, that feels very below the belt, <laughs> but yes. it happens. And mm -hmm. these companies can't overlook that risk that their page could get shut down at any minute and they need to capture those leads deeper than just on Instagram. I think that's absolutely right. Getting that data, you know, making sure you're complying with your own privacy policy and other privacy rules and collecting that data, but then yeah, getting your customer information, you know, whether they're signing up for a newsletter or something, but using the website to drive traffic there um, and to communicate with customers as opposed to just an Instagram page is, is so much smarter. I mean, you know, the website, I suppose, arguably you don't own either the registrar or the hosting provider could take issue with something you're doing, but it's much less likely. And if you get those email addresses, now you've got that. And and that's valuable. You know, a, a company, that's a trade secret that it, that confers value on the business. And so a company that decides to get acquired or, you know, seeks acquisition down the road or even investment, having those email addresses is one piece of the value of the company. And so it's a good idea to do that anyway. But yeah, you know, a lot of clients will say, well, it's not fair. Instagram can't prohibit me. You know, that's, that violates my free speech. Like, no, free speech sure is can. something that the good. Yeah. <laughs> it's if they're private companies, they can do whatever they want. Like they feel like important social institutions because they are becoming them. But, you know, the First Amendment protects us from the government abridging our free speech, not Instagram or Facebook or Twitter or the app store. Um, you know, getting a cannabis related app through in the app store is also very tricky. And 
subject to sort of the whim of whoever is reviewing it. So all of these things, I think, yeah, it's probably risky to rely on them in any industry, but as a practical matter, it's most risky by far for cannabis companies to rely on these third parties to take care of that for them. This is the most illegally legal industry. <laughs> yes. It's everyone's just out here shooting their shot, seeing what sticks. Yes. Does it sometimes feel a little bit like throwing spaghetti at the wall? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And it's hard to, because, you know, I'll have clients come to me and say, well, you told me this was illegal, but so-and-so did it. <laughs> like, well, yes. And it was illegal when they did it too. And it's just, you know, I mean, in a lot of cases, it's a matter of not making yourself low hanging fruit, you know, yeah. don't be the enforcement target. So if, if a cannabis brand is advertising on Instagram in a very lifestyle centric way, they're not showing pictures of cannabis products or cannabis flower. They're not showing imagery of people smoking. They never have children or anyone who looks potentially under 21 on there. You know, they're just sort of a, like a, a fun aesthetic profile, something like there's still a risk. There's always a risk. They, it could get shut down, but the risk is lower. So there are ways to mitigate that risk. And that's really what my job ends up being is like, you know, we're, we're not going to get you complying with all the laws because you can't, at least you can't comply with federal law. And if to the extent you want to be advertising with these third parties, you can't comply with their terms of service fully. So yeah, it's about making yourself less of a target than some of your competitors. Let's talk about CBD for a second, because when you're talking about social media, one of the subcategories that I see often in the CBD space are multi-level marketers promoting <sighs> on their own social media channels. So it almost takes a CBD product and completely distributes it across various channels of these individuals who are selling their own quote unquote line of cannabis as an MLM. Mm -hmm. And that risk essentially just gets dispersed across these different mm -hmm. channels. So that seems like a very interesting <laughs> strategy to me from a cannabis standpoint on marketing. What are your thoughts on that? That's a good point. I mean, anytime you're working with brand ambassadors or influencers or, you know, third parties who are promoting your products, whether they're, you know, whether it's an MLM kind of a situation or, or otherwise, yeah, you're, you're adopting risk as a company, as the brand, those folks are out of compliance because in this, like we're talking about, you know, they're promoting cannabis or CBD products in a way that's going to draw attention to Instagram or because they fail to disclose that it's an ad or they make health claims that they're not permitted to make. All of these things are risks, certainly to the user doing it. They could lose their account or, or suffer other consequences. But that risk, especially if the FTC looks into it, will come back to the company. So, yeah, I, I think that it is <laughs> it is understandable that these companies want to work with others to promote you know their products, but that risk is spread out and, and increased. And I would say in that case, what you're describing, I think the biggest risk is a risk of making health claims, a risk that the brand ambassadors are going to make health claims. To the extent we've seen the FDA and sometimes in conjunction with the FTC enforce against the sale of CBD products, it's always been because the company or its ambassadors are making pretty egregious health claims. So I have not seen enforcement against companies who are being very, very careful to not make health claims. That, that I shouldn't say that I've not seen it. I rarely see that kind of enforcement. There's usually something else driving it. But we've seen a fair bit of enforcement, especially there was, there was a rash of uh, CBD companies claiming it helped treat COVID. <laughs> Oh, no. It doesn't, um, for the record, does not. Uh, and so, yeah, the FDA and the FTC cracked down on that hard, as you might imagine. But we'll also see, you know, um, claims about cancer treatment and all these different things. And, you know, I think as hopefully a lot of your listeners know, it's not just that the brand itself, the company itself can't make the health claim. No one can, they can't allow their brand ambassadors to make it. And they also can't share like testimonials from customers, even if they're true. So, you know, I have clients in the CBD pet space, talk about a highly regulated uh, landmine. Um, so I have clients selling, selling weed to dogs. And, uh, and, you know, anecdotally, like, these products can really, really help with animals who are having seizures, who have anxiety, palliative care when they're in pain, things like that. And they'll get amazing testimonials from their 
human clients from the, the pet owners saying, you know, oh my God, I've seen such a change. This has drastically improved this or that thing. And understandably, they want to put them on their website. They want to share them on social media. And they can't because even if it's true that that person had that experience or that pet had that experience, to share that is to claim that that experience is typical of the product and that constitutes a health claim. And so that's the thing I see the most as a risk when you're letting a bunch of people go out and say what they want about a product that, especially CBD, that's, I mean, let's be honest, we tout it as a wellness product, as a medicine, as an alternative to opiates, as an alternative to other medication that the FDA reviews and approves. And so understandably, you're going to have a bunch of people saying like, oh my God, I'm sleeping so much better. This helped with my insomnia. I'm not depressed. I'm not anxious anymore. And there are ways to say these things that that are lower risk. Like I said, it's all about mitigating that risk, but it takes a real control of your brand ambassador team, your influencer team to make sure that they're not increasing your risk. And uh, so, yeah, <laughs> you're right to identify this as an area of concern. Yeah. And, and similar to influencers and brand ambassadors going out and potentially putting your organization at risk, they also, especially more so with influencers that you're, mm-hmm. you know, paying for a project or a campaign, they're taking on risk. So mm-hmm. what are some of the ways that influencers and brands can, you know, better get into these agreements when it does come to these highly regulated products so that the brand's not at risk if the influencer's page gets shut down, but the influencer also is fully compliant and able to facilitate and work in a way that doesn't completely erase risk, but at least lowers the risk that anything is going to potentially go awry for them. Yeah. I mean, I think the biggest thing is making sure everyone understands that, no, we can't eliminate the risk, but we can take steps to mitigate it. And and so when I draft influencer agreements between brands and influencers, I will first and foremost make clear in the agreement that the influencer is aware that they are putting their account at risk. If it's a cannabis influencer, I'm less concerned, but if it's a sort of a broad, you know, they, they do a lot of different marketing and this is the first time maybe they've done any cannabis promotion. It's really important to make clear to them. Basically from, if I'm representing the the brand in this scenario, I want to make clear to the influencer, if you lose your account as a result of working with us, we're not on the hook. You can't come back and say, Hey, I valued that account at X amount of money. You know, I made this much from each post. And so now you owe me for these lost profits or this lost potential revenue. It's really important to protect my client and say like, no, they are taking this risk knowingly and they cannot come after you for damages if they lose their account. So that's sort of the first piece. And then I think it's it's certainly about papering in the agreement what the requirements are. And, and it will vary for different brands. But as a general rule, things like don't show images of yourself consuming or, or people consuming. Or, you know, if the company is okay with them showing consumption, you know, sometimes that's the that's what they want. Then it's like, okay, then be careful about where that is. You know, if it's consumption in a public place, outdoor are they clearly on federal land? Are they standing in Washington, D.C. with the Capitol building behind them? You know, just making sure that they're not doing things that are going to draw particular attention and scrutiny. Um, And then if possible, I like to have the company review the influencers posts before they go up um, or at least dictate to them what the caption and the hashtags need to be or review the caption, which is where so many health claims can appear. I think especially in the beginning, if if it's a longer term relationship, you know, reviewing the first few posts so that you've gotten the sense of what you're doing and then maybe they can go off on their own. But in my ideal scenario, they review everything before the influencer actually posts it. You can sort out who's responsible for what between the parties. But ultimately, like I said, the FTC goes after the company. They go after both, but the, the company is the one really on the hook. So making clear that you have an agreement in place that does monitor and limit the influencers. And if you're not reviewing the posts in advance, then review them as soon as they're posted and request that they be taken down or, or revised if it seems like it's too risky. Are there any new or emerging laws that you anticipate will change the landscape of advertising in the cannabis industry? 
For now, it's all very state by state, even with CBD products, you know, because the FDA hasn't approved the sale of most of these products we see on the shelves. Some states have stepped in to create their own state regulatory framework. And in those cases, you know, we, we see some evolution, but, but basically it's just important to understand the rules of each state. If you're advertising on a place like Instagram, obviously it's going to be available in every state. So it's, it's, it can be trickier to figure out what rules you need to comply with. In part, it can depend where the product is manufactured. And with marijuana products in particular, there you're not shipping across state lines. Um, so it's important to determine, okay, if it's a California company, then we have to comply with California's advertising rules, things like that. So keeping an eye on that. In terms of what I see coming down the pike. I mean, eventually the FDA is going to have to come in and regulate CBD products. And when they do, we will have some additional guidance. I mean, we will at least know that they need to be treated like other FDA regulated products. It's it's hard to say what more it'll look like. On the marijuana side, I don't see federal prohibition changing too soon. I think we'll continue to just have to go state by state looking at those advertising rules. One thing that we are seeing that's it's a little newer and, and sort of interesting is the way that states are dealing with synthetic cannabinoids, the f- most famous of which being Delta-8. You may have seen Delta-8 advertised as like weed light or legal weed, and that's sort of true. Um, Basically, and I am no chemist, uh, but the federal government in the Controlled Substances Act, they defined marijuana based on the (laughs) inclusion of Delta-9 THC. So there is some other form of THC called Delta-8. It is not generally naturally occurring in any significant amounts, but companies have figured out how to manufacture it out of CBD and other cannabinoids. I know. And so in states like North Carolina and places in the South where hemp is legal, but marijuana is not, we're seeing a huge influx of Delta-8 products. I want to just give a note to listeners that these products are extremely unregulated. We don't know what's in them. um, And they, to the extent that they seem like a safer alternative to marijuana, they are not, especially if the alternative is a regulated marijuana market. I, I think that's, that's a much better choice, but we are seeing a big influx of these. And along with that, other so-called minor cannabinoids. So you might see, especially on sleep products and other wellness products, things like CBG, CBN, CBC, um, all of these other sort of newer cannabinoids that, again, don't occur in significant quantity in nature, but can be created by, I don't know, again, not a chemist, but some some process that's imposed on CBD and, and THC. And so what we're starting to see, for example, states like Oregon have actually effectively banned the inclusion of these minor cannabinoids in any products. There's There are some pathways to include them in their regulated marijuana market, but I have clients who've been selling products that contain some of these minor cannabinoids, CBN and things like that, on a multi-state basis, and they're finding that they cannot sell their products currently in Oregon. And so we're, we're seeing that shift on a state-by-state basis. So that's not, I guess, specifically an advertising rule so much as a what products are allowed. So I think that's one of the things we're going to see coming down the pike. Delta 8 has gotten very, very popular very quickly. And I get the sense that no one's quite sure what to do with it. I'm very curious about how society kind of pushes forward at such a rapid pace. And then the legal system is just like trudging behind, (laughs) just trying to keep up. Exactly. (laughs) Oh my gosh. And this is such an interesting industry because it is so historically regulated and it's just like inching away and biting off pieces. But I mean, people get creative. I wonder, is Oregon regulation happening because of the oversupply that you mentioned? You know, I mean, that could have something to do with it, but I think it's more out of a concern about things like Delta 8. Um, mm-hmm. I think that some some states are just sort of like, we don't know a lot about these products yet and how they could affect people. And, and that's true. I mean, we don't know a lot about marijuana generally because it's been federally prohibited and we couldn't even do research on it in any meaningful way for many years. But these new cannabinoids, they're new. I mean, they existed 
in such small quantities that they weren't really like we we just don't know what effect they'll have on us. Um, and anecdotally, some really interesting evidence about like CBN and CBG being helpful for sleep and and having other benefits. And and we may find down the road like wow, these are great. These are so helpful. We're so glad we discovered these. But I think there's a lot of anxiety right now. Um, and I think that. There's a lot of discussion about what the term synthetic means, and it sounds dangerous and bad, like, oh, you're manufacturing drugs. And, you know, if if it's synthetic because there's just some process imposed on the CBD and it it changes just a bit, that that may not be kind of the boogeyman that we're all imagining. But I think Oregon's just trying to get ahead of it out of some consumer safety concerns, some of which may be misguided, some of which I I think may be valid. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of other states start to follow suit and they they may even be already. And I am not aware of it. But then you've got states like Wisconsin and where I'm from, which came out explicitly and said, like, bring on the Delta 8. <laughs> That's legal here. So, you know, it's, it's, it's just another patchwork of, of regulations. What do you expect the future to hold for brands in the cannabis world? Like if you had a crystal ball, what are some changes that you might predict are going to be coming down the line in the next year, five years, 10 years, 20 years, 50 years? It's a great question. And I'm trying to answer it in a way that isn't too negative. <laughs> Um, I think negative is welcome here. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was recently interviewed for something in the article that was written up. It was like, it, I sounded so incredibly doomsday about the industry. And so I, I'm, I'm trying to maybe avoid quite, quite such an angle here, but okay. I think, I think we're, we're going to see more innovation, very exciting new products, whether that's delivery methods, um, you know, even lower dose products for people who are not traditionally cannabis consumers, but want to use it maybe as an alternative to wine or things like that. Seeing a lot of interesting innovation in the beverage space in general, even outside of cannabis, there's been such a move among like Gen Z to drink less alcohol than the rest of us have, have been drinking. And so we're seeing a lot of interesting new like functional beverage categories coming out and, and cannabis is right there with that. Um, so I think we'll continue to see that. It's hard to say where the CBD market will go, but it, it does seem to be very popular. Um, and I think as we learn more, you know, that could be a good alternative to opiates and, and anxiety meds and things like that. And so we might see more mainstream acceptance there. Honestly, though, I think what happens is as these markets become more regulated and then eventually federally legal. And once we finally get past federal prohibition on marijuana, then what you're going to see is a collapsing of all of these tiny brands. Most of them will not survive the end of federal prohibition because as much as it's hard to operate in just one state, it also protects a lot of them. And the fact of the matter is, companies that would be the true competitors in the space who have just a ton of money like Marlboro and Pepsi and Budweiser, whatever, you know, all of those, they're just waiting in the wings. They are, you can see them testing out like, can, how close can we get to CBD? And, you know, they have an incredibly vested interest in not violating federal law right now because of all the other products they have on the market and, and because of their banking situation, whatever. But the minute that it becomes safe for them to play in this space, that's what they're going to do. Then they're going to take over. Um, and so some of the most successful brands will hopefully be acquired by the Marlboros of the world and the rest will not. And, you know, I hear a lot of folks talking about like, oh, but it'll be just like craft beer. And, you know, we, we have Budweiser, but we also have all these craft beer companies. And that's true. And, and I like the optimism, but think about how long it took for the craft beer market to develop. That isn't something that developed alongside the development of big alcohol. And it, <laughs> a lot of those things you think of as craft beer are actually owned by the big alcohol producers yep. too. So I, That's what I was thinking, <laughs> I'm like, Anheuser-Busch yeah. owns a lot of them. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, uh, you know, again, I'm, I'm falling into some doomsday stuff here, but I, I think it's, well, it's, yeah. it's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, to get acquired is not necessarily a bad thing for everybody because it does mean you're going to have access to more resources. It means you're going to have access to more capital. It means you're going to have more access to X, Y, and Z. What it, but what it does lose is autonomy of yes. making essentially your entire own decisions. Then you're answering to a board. You're answering to other executives that historically you haven't had to. 
So of course there is some negative connotation and we love small businesses. Mm-hmm. However, there is also a positive to it, which is if you've been in the cannabis industry and you own your own line and you own your own brand mm-hmm. and you are wanting to build that up, that could be your ticket. It could be. I think I, I'm concerned that there are far too many brands and the majority of them will not yeah. be acquired. Um, I think, you know, it goes back to that, like, it's important to establish your brand in multiple States. I mean, I can imagine some of the like currently top cannabis companies that would be able to potentially get an acquisition offer from Anheuser-Busch, et cetera. Um, and, but I think the vast majority won't, um, I think you, you need more market power. It's so easy to become enamored of your own brand and marketing. They go like, no, this is great. I've built something up. It's really great. But at the end of the day, when those big companies are looking at, you know, just thousands of potential acquisition targets. How do you stand apart from them? And and it's going to be market saturation and, and capital. And so those brands who have managed to get into many states, um, who have developed that multi-state presence and have really developed a strong consumer base where the consumers are coming into the dispensary and asking for that brand, not just like, oh, that's cool. I like that brand, but like it's really driving sales. Yeah, I think they they have a lot of hope and that will be exciting for them. And I worry about my other clients who, you know, yeah, I love them. (laughs) Everyone needs to follow Amanda's advice. Go get your IP sorted out, build up your brand in the cannabis space. Make sure that you are pouring in different ways for you to build up your equity so that when this time comes, (laughs) you are as prepared as humanly possible. Exactly. Exactly. Oh my gosh. Well, thank you for the look into the past, present, and future. Amanda, you are wonderful. Appreciate you sharing your knowledge for the second time. (laughs) (laughs) Anytime. (laughs) I learned so much from you. So pimp yourself out. Where can people find you, learn from you, follow you, work with you? How can they get in touch with you? Sure. Thank you. I I think my website is still in process, but you can see uh, the landing page or depending on when you listen to this, maybe the full website at uh, amandaconleylaw.com. That's A-M-A-N-D-A-C-O-N-L-E-Y-L-A-W.com. And I don't currently have any socials. I'm terrible. I'm actually in the middle of transitioning. It's it's a pretty exciting moment for me. I had built a firm with a partner for about seven years and just a few months ago decided to go out on my own and do my own thing, hang out my shingle. So the public identity is still in the works, but you can find me at that website or you can shoot me an email, amanda at amandaconleylaw.com. And I'd be happy to chat with you. Amanda, you're wonderful. Congratulations and best wishes to you. Looking forward to following along with your journey and your new law firm. Thanks, Hillary. Thanks again for having me. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Social Complex Podcast. Your support means the world to me. So if you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, be sure to leave a five-star rating and subscribe to our show. We'll be releasing a new episode every Tuesday, bringing you various stories, deep dives, and discussions around the complexities of social media in our modern world. To follow along for more, be sure to follow us at Your Social HQ on Instagram or check out Social HQ at www.yoursocialhq.com. I'm your host, Hillary Applegate, and I'll see you back here next week. Stay sane out there.